Hey guys, this is Fred from GamingHistory101.com, and uh, I'd like to start off uh, this podcast by stating that this is going to kind of be the format moving forward for for the podcast, which is that it will come out weekly, and um, some weeks we'll have guests and and various other people, but yet other weeks it'll be um, just me by myself, and um, I think the biggest reason I did this is that um, retro gaming, and especially um, figuring out how to present retro gaming has kind of changed um, over the years and um, traditional or even non-traditional review structures don't really qualify very well for old school games um, and uh, unless you're talking about like long generated RPGs and uh, as a result um, I'm thinking about doing a, a little bit of a different format for the show or for for the website so um, you'll still see uh, lots of coverage on various things um, but I did think that uh, video is a good way to show off a lot of retro games so um, what I'm going to do is you'll start seeing articles moving forward um, that kind of give an intro and a little bit of info about the game and like where it's at right now and how much it costs and all this stuff and then after that uh, you'll see something very similar to like a giant bomb quick look it'll be like probably 20 30 minutes of gameplay um, of uh, me playing the game and then after that I will uh, continue with the game and in most cases try to finish the game uh, almost kind of like they do with uh, Game Center CX otherwise known as uh, Retro Game Challenge and um, and uh, if I can post all those videos but for the sake of the average viewer listener whatever um, you know you'll just have the main video like in embedded in there and then links for the rest of them and those will all be at my uh, at my YouTube page so uh, I'll have direct links on the main page now to the YouTube page so you can just kind of browse around there and look at the videos um, and in addition, this podcast is going to, uh, I hope, become a weekly thing. It might have to be bi-weekly, but for now we're going to try weekly. And, um, you know, it's really hard to get people who, one, know and want to talk about retro gaming, and then two, who have kind of a schedule that works with everybody. Um, I think my top guy is uh, is Trees Lounge um, from uh, Easy Mode Unlocked. His name's Rob. Um, he's great, and uh, he's always ava- he tends to be available when I'm available, actually. Um, and, uh, and I'd love to have him on more and more. And, heck, if he wanted to be a co-host permanently, he is more than welcome. So, uh, Trees, if you hear this before I ask you, that's the official uh, word. Uh, but in the meantime, um, you know, like I said, it's hard to get people on retro shows because it really has to do with timing. Um, retro gaming as a whole requires a lot of information. You have to know a lot about, you know, the games that came out and stuff like that. And you kind of want to be around that sweet spot. I would say you were born between like 1975 and like 1990 um, because you that means you, you are at least somewhat familiar with at least the 16-bit era or before, um, and then it, it drags into it. Um, the reason being is a lot of people think that retro games don't offer um, a lot other than a challenge, um, which couldn't be more false. Um, retro games kind of show you the building blocks of, of how modern-day games came to be. Uh, They're also a, a fount of uh, very unique ideas, um, the very diverse worlds, especially when you get into Japan versus Europe versus America, especially back in the day. The, the programming was so simple, and what you did in early games like Nintendo games or Famicom games um, was so distinct that... Uh, that you could actually tell almost the region where a game came from based off of what it looks like, what it sounds like, and especially what it plays like. Um, and so that requires a knowledge base. It also requires that you've played a lot of these games. And I mean, realistically, if you didn't play them growing up, you're not going to really get a good feel 
for what stands behind the game. I've put probably 20 hours into Ninja Gaiden 2 on the NES. I've never beaten it, and it's the easiest one of the three. Um, but uh, at least I know kind of what goes into it. Same thing with Yonoid and various other things. And then, you know, so part of it comes to just growing up and playing this. You know, I got my first NES when I was uh, five years old in 1987, I think. But it might have been 88. I think it was 87, though. And... Um, I've been playing games ever since and tried to immerse myself in them. And, and there are a lot of people like me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of co-hosts and they've all been great. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking bad about any of my co-hosts or their knowledge base. No, they were well suited for retro shows. Everyone from, you know, Trees to Derek to even, um, you know, Jamie, uh, Ellie. I mean, he, you talk about somebody who is like 10 years my junior but can still keep up with the past that is an individual right there and uh, you're welcome on the show as well anytime you like um but uh it's hard to find these people and the problem you run into is you start saying okay well the next show is going to be about gta the next show is going to be about ghostbusters the next show is going to be about brawlers and people try to you know kind of categorize those things do a little research on wikipedia and then play those games for maybe an hour maybe two if you're really lucky like 10 hours of just like a series of games and that's great and all but it doesn't really give you a feel like when i start up mike tyson's punch out i'm not coming into it new um if you watch any gameplay videos which maybe i'll put up one of me playing i can burn through to soda popinski without having any problems at all like it's just ingrained in my body and my brain you know I, I know the muscle memory same thing goes with super mario brothers one and two and three and world i mean it's all just there and so um you know i i do think a mistake a lot of i've been listening for a lot of retro podcasts because a lot of my friends who you know you know who you are you're probably listening to this right now you know you all want to know where the where there are other retro podcasts other than the great retronauts which um was done by one up uh, jeremy Parrish. Uh, great man in his own right had lots of great guests uh, Shane Bettenhausen was definitely you know a keystone before he left games journalism and in addition you know he had all the one-up crew and the EGM crew and then beyond that you know he had Ray Barnholt which was really good for old school stuff in Japanese gaming he had Scott Sharkey who was very familiar with Commodore 64 and PC gaming a weakness of my own until the 90s um and he had uh, Chris Kohler, who wrote his own history book. You know, I mean, he had some some great people. But I am not from California, and those guys are great. But I doubt they want to be on this show. But again, if you happen to hear it, you're more than welcome. And I'm um, taking the reins now at over at Retronauts is Bob Mackey, who at first I wrote off, but now I, I have seen he can pick those reins up and carry it with him, and he's very knowledgeable in his own right. Um, but those people are over in California, and they're professionals, and they're there, and I'm here. But after looking on the net, yeah, it looks like there's like nobody who has tried to do retro gaming in the terms of a podcast other than those guys. And so if you want new content, you know, you kind of got to generate it. And so much like they say in Retronauts episode 100, the final episode with Jeremy Parrish, before it becomes Retronauts Live, they said go out and make your own. And maybe it's shit, maybe it's not. So maybe this will be shit, maybe it won't be. Um, but uh, as it stands... Um, I'm going to continue on this show. And uh, again, uh, the biggest thing about retro gaming is pretty much stories and history. And, you know, not talking about how a game plays, but talking about the context and things like that. And uh, I've noticed on... Um on my website that some of the most popular articles are the stories. Um, I, I had a series called storytelling. I only did like two stories on it and, um, and the head to heads where I tell you kind of information about games that also come with it, their own stories that you might not have known. And so, um, 
while those are great, they are really long and drawn out articles. And I almost wonder if they're better in more of a conversational standpoint. So without further ado, I'm going to start into um, this this first show, this first experiment, where it's going to be me by myself talking to you, the listeners. And um, and uh, I'm hoping to set up a community soon. Um, obviously, we have it through Gaming History. You can always email me, um, spidersvenom at gmail.com. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R-S-V-E-N-O-M at gmail.com. Uh, with any ideas of articles you'd like to see, gameplay you'd like to see from games, or uh, or, or podcast topics that you'd like to either be a part of or, or see. Um, but I haven't gotten any response yet, and I need to really build up this community thing. And so I've got a couple of friends um, you know, who podcast also, and you might be even be listening to their shows that have forums. And I was hoping to use those forums to be kind of the home to talk about retro gaming and kind of the, the consistency and the places we can go for gaming history. So hopefully that'll come up and you'll get much more content. In the meantime, got to do it the old-fashioned way. I come up with the content, I do the research, I generate it, and I present it to you, and you either love it or hate it, and I either get one or 1,000 downloads. So um, without further ado, um, this this week is going to be about the PlayStation. Um, whether you do or do not know it, um, September 9th, 1995 would mark the, uh, the uh, release of the PlayStation 1, and um, this is a pretty remarkable console, so that's going to be the topic. It's not really kind of like an even or odd year, but I did notice that this week, you know, I'm recording this on September 11th. It's probably coming out on the 12th or 13th. Um, you know, this week is the is the week the PlayStation came out, uh, you know, also many years ago. I think it was 17 years ago, um, which makes me feel super old. Um, let's see, 2005, 2015 would be 20. So no, it's, yeah, 17 years ago. Um, so um, what we're going to talk about is kind of the inception of the PlayStation and, and how it came to be and how Sony managed to create this system uh, and why. And then um, we'll get into uh, kind of what the PlayStation was uh, in the grand scheme of things, what it brought to gaming, and kind of how it, it really is the, uh, the, the, the more modern version, um, the 3D, shall I say, rendered graphics version of the Famicom. It took a time when the gaming industry was looking like it was going to have a mini crash, um, like we saw in 1983, um, and uh, pulled it out of it. So, um, so yeah, so uh, I guess we'll start off right there. Um, as many things uh, in the gaming space can be said, um, it really all goes back to 1991 and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or the Super Famicom, depending on the, the area you grew up in, uh, if anybody out there <laughs> was in Japan. Um, and uh, for those that don't know, it had a very unique, that console had a very unique um, system for generating sound. Um, you know, I mean, aside from everything else, um, it had... Um, a very distinct sound that's hard to replicate even today. Many games from the Super Nintendo era were ported either to PlayStation 1, which we'll talk about, um, or to, we also saw a resurgence in Game Boy Advance. And the one thing that both of those systems cannot do very well is replicate the sound. And the reason why was the sound was actually its own audio subsystem. And, and, and to be fair, the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive had that too. But what was in there was a 68,000 processor, which was basically... Um, a, uh, a a master system or a Mark III, um, you know, the previous console, which is why Genesis had a very easy slot. You could pop in there and, and play Sega Master System games. Um, so, it, I mean, while the Yamaha chip was cool, it didn't really generate some truly impressive sounds, especially from the synth perspective that you saw with the uh, Super Nintendo. Um, in there was a Sony um, SPC 700 chip. Um, it offered um, 16-bit DSP, 64K SRAM, which probably sounds like 
a lot of chit chatter. Um, but what it means is, um, that it basically used, um, multiple different, um, different, uh, sub channels to create very interesting high and low frequency, um, noises and, and very cool sounds. Um, it, it ran, um, eight consecutive, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, eight consecutive, um, uh, I don't know what they're called. Anyway, eight consecutive channels, we'll say. Whereas, like, the Nintendo predominantly used five, I think. Possibly. No, it used four. And then I think Castlevania three um, allowed a fifth. And then because of a special chip by Konami that was only allowed in Japan, the Japanese version Akumaju Densetsu um, had a sixth channel. Um, but, again, that was very rare. So, really, um, you know, Super Nintendo had kind of, like, double the amount of uh, channels uh, that's the word I was looking for is channels. Um, and as a result, you could create some very impressive sounds um, where you get a lot of the distinct sounds. Everything as simple as, you know, the kind of orchestral sound to, um, to uh, super Mario world, but more importantly, an early game uh, legend of Zelda link to the past had this very epic and childlike almost uh, sound to it. Um, the thunderstorm sounds clear as day, you know, it had this very melodic input, you know, and that would continue into many games and cause many amazing soundtracks, uh, including like secret of mana had a great soundtrack. Um, you would also see um, very impressive sound coming out of um, the final fantasy series, final fantasy four five and six, uh, came out in Japan on the Super Famicom. Uh, we got uh, four and six, although in America they were known as two and three. And to be fair, Final Fantasy two um, in America is a very shortened, eased-up version of Final Fantasy four. But either way, I mean the soundtracks were very impressive for all of these games, um, and most people can remember them today. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, all of that comes thanks to the uh, this Sony chip, and because this chip was not in. Um, you know, future consoles, um, including the uh, the PlayStation, for reasons we'll get to shortly. Um, they really couldn't replicate that sound very well. Um, it was absolutely horrible if if it was ever attempted, and I don't think it was on the Nintendo sixty four. The Nintendo sixty four was actually a step back for Nintendo because without Sony's help, um, after they burned them, um, Nintendo was forced to do its own thing, and it doesn't sound like it was a very good run because what it actually did was take processing power almost like an integrated sound card like you would have in a motherboard today and use that for the sound so your sound was crappy unless you really ramped it up in which case you're costing yourself processing power and graphical integrity so that really sucks <laughs> and as a result the super nintendo super famicom is probably one of the best if not the best sound chip um of a, of a console um you know to date, I mean, obviously, it gets a lot better nowadays, but uh, but that was before we had streaming media and things like that. It's it's generating its own sound. Um, there's even a, a now that I think about it, Mario Paint even had a music uh, synthesizer that today people still make music. Just go on YouTube, type in Mario Paint, and then like soundtrack or something, and you'll see all these crazy independent stuff that people did. Um, and uh, with that venture, that joint venture with Nintendo and Sony. Um, Nintendo around 1993, 90, uh, no, this is not, not that late, probably, probably around 91, 92 was starting to see the writing on the wall that CD media was becoming popular. Um, you would already have CD media integrated into PCs and Macs. Um, Myst would be out, um, and it would be, um, you know, showing off some impressive things, uh, especially from a soundtrack perspective. Um, eventually, 
um, I believe PC did this, but again, this is a slight weak spot for me. Um, they, they would generate um, Redbook Audio, or, which better known as CD Tracks, wave format maybe. Um, it's not the same, but it's, it's basically the same, um, into PC CD-ROM games. Um, and uh, CD-ROMs started to pop up in the, early, or the late, uh, late 92, early 93, and really kind of flooded the market very fast. Um, you would see, um, first of all, there was uh, Sega did it. They did the Sega CD console, uh, which adds on to the Sega Genesis and allows audio tracks to be played, which is why Sega CD, if it's known for anything, is probably best known um, for the really cool soundtracks that come out of uh, out of that console, especially um, with some of um, uh, Working Designs, who was a, uh, a publisher who basically brought lots of Japanese games that normally wouldn't come over here to America, especially RPGs. Um, they would do the, the Lunar series, um, or Lunar, no, it's Lunar. Okay, they would do the Lunar series um, on uh, on Sega CD. It would later be ported to PlayStation, but they started it on Sega CD, uh, obviously known for its great soundtrack, especially uh, Silver Star Story, I think, is the first one, and that had just an amazing open song, um, opening song. And again, some of these sounds and songs may make an appearance on this show. I haven't decided if I'm going to splice them in yet. Um, but uh, but yeah, as a result, um, Nintendo was, was looking into uh, add-on systems, um, including a CD system for, uh, of all things, the Super Famicom to kind of extend its life. And uh, the first people it looked to were, um, were Sony. And uh, Sony worked together with them and generated a, uh, a CD console, um, ironically known as, uh, codenamed the, uh, the Sony PlayStation. And it was going to um, attach onto uh, the, the, the Super Famicom and later the Super Nintendo, and it would allow uh, CD-ROM-based games. And... Um, and uh, they would work as two independent consoles, you know, much like the Sega CD. You could make a Sega CD game on CD, and you could make a Sega Genesis game, and sometimes they released them on both formats. And uh, the same thing happened here with um, with the early version of the PlayStation. Um, but there was a little bit of an issue, which was that Sony wanted um, to own the games that they produced. And Nintendo wasn't too keen on this. Pre prior to this, all people who ever worked with Nintendo, especially licensees who made games, you would basically sign your, your game over. Nintendo would get a cut, and it would be owned and licensed by Nintendo to be used on the console, and uh, and they, they could retain the rights to it. This allowed them to do um, heavy lockdowns, such as... Um, you know, this is why Batman by Sunsoft came out on the NES and a, an, a, an ideally superior version, although in, in all honesty, I haven't played it yet, um, other than watching some, some footage um, of, uh, of Batman on the Sega Genesis was essentially the same game, but in a much superior, much more superior way because of the, the heavier prowess of the console allowed it to look better, play better, play smoother and, um, and sound better. And, um, and the reason it didn't come out on the Genesis in America until 1990 was because of a license deal for the Famicom and Super, or for the Nintendo actually, that Nintendo had over Sunsoft. They could not release it in America. The, the license wouldn't allow them to. Um, so Sony didn't want this. Sony actually wanted the possibility that a, a you know a Super Famicom PlayStation game or a Super Nintendo PlayStation game could be ported and used. It might have a PC version. It might, God, end up on Sega CD or or on, you know, the 3DO, which later came out, or Neo Geo CD or Philips CDI or various other things. And uh, it's very interesting that um, 
that they they took this stance and Nintendo thought about it for a while and was like, uh, you know, I mean, it's it, they're varying opinions on on what you know the real reason was, but it, it from what I understand, um, the big issue was Nintendo did not want that. They were not going to stand for that, and uh, Sony didn't seem to be backing down, but. Nintendo didn't really let Sony know that this wasn't going to work out. It was kind of like a back and forth banter, but in the meantime, they were like develop the prototype. And a prototype actually was produced by Sony um, and ready to go at, I believe, CES 1992, if I'm not correct. Um, and uh, they were going to, or maybe it was 93 because it was at the beginning of the year. Um, but uh, there was one in, in summer and one in, in, uh, in, in winter. And I'm pretty sure this was in winter um, in January, probably 93 then. Um, but it might've been 92. And uh, Sony actually thought, you know, they were going to do a presser and uh, their Nintendo would announce that they're working with Sony and the PlayStation would come out in the back burner though. Um, Sony had been talking to Philips of all people who are going to generate a CD-ROM system. And it seemed like from what I could tell Philips had decided that, um, that yeah, yeah, they, they would agree to those license rights. They would let Nintendo keep the rights to all those things. And they just wanted to make a console that was CD based and, and put it on and, and going with Nintendo was probably the safest bet you had right now. I mean, they literally owned much of the gaming market in both Japan and, uh, and, um, America. And it was widely believed that although, uh, Sega Genesis for a short period of time, um, you know, overtook them, it was only because it was that interim between Nintendo and Super Nintendo. Um, and it, eventually that is what happened, um, was that, uh, the second, uh, Super Nintendo came out. I mean, it didn't take long before it just pile-drived over the Genesis and definitely took, it wasn't as strong a leader as the Nintendo was over various other consoles, but it was definitely the stronger of the two consoles. Um, but, uh, anyway, so what ends up happening is Sony, uh, or Nintendo, Nintendo goes out on its presser and mentions that it's partnering with Philips. And you want to talk about Sony getting pissed. The first time they had ever heard about this would be at this CES when they announced that. And uh, I don't even know if a prototype was made for this Philips add-on console, um, but eventually it would fall through as well. I think Nintendo decided they didn't want to have CD media at all um, for, for, yeah, I'm sure they had their good reasons. Um, and they obviously did not make their next console a CD media console. Um, so Nintendo, like we see today, is very reluctant to jump on board with new technologies and ways of creating games, uh, much to the dismay and uh, cost of its third-party developers, which is why Nintendo, um, beyond the uh, SNES and, and parts of the N64, um, would have very poor third-party um, support and uh, and partnerships. Um, especially for exclusivity uh, moving forward. Um, but uh, what ended up happening as a result of that is Philips would, um, was given rights to uh, license out the caricatures or possibly even the characters of certain um, Nintendo staples, which is why the Philips CDI, which is what Philips would later release as its own console, um, I think in 93, 94, um, would be had those god-awful games that were like um, the live-action... There were like two live-action Zelda games and one stupid puzzle game and, and some crazy Mario games. And there was even Mario's Wacky Worlds, which was a uh, a game that never came out, but they're out there, and you can just burn... The, the game's out there on the internet, and you can just burn the game to a disc, and it'll play if you happen to have a CDI. Trick is, you got to get a CDI. Um, and it's it's this weird prototype thing where you can kind of see this this crazy venture is what if the Mario Five was uh, Super Mario World with all these crazy ideas or no uh, sorry Mario Four was this crazy world with all these you know hodgepodge of of assets from Mario Three 
you know, kind of up for a CD console. So very interesting, um, history going into it. But Sony, you know, after this time doesn't back down, they finally go, you know what, damn it, we can, we can make our own console and we can do it better. And so while it might've, the inception of the PlayStation might've been out of spite, I think at this point, Sony decided, okay, we've come this far. I think we can jump into this market. And when Sony announces the PlayStation and they kind of, I think we already knew that it was, they were going to announce it, but they were actually going to talk about it at, um, E3. In fact, it would be E3 2005, which, or 1995, sorry, which would be the first E3. And Sony was going to do a press presentation. Um, it was slated to go on after Sega, and that'll be relevant in a minute. And um, I'm sorry, I think it was E3 94. Might have been E3 94 now that I think about it, but maybe it was 95. No, I think it was 95. I'm sorry. Let me take that back. Um, they were going to do their presser on the PlayStation. And, and basically, it's the presser where you already know it's there. In fact, it was already out in Japan, so it was the Saturn. Um, but this is where Sega and Sony and, and I think Nintendo was there, but I don't think they had anything to announce yet. They were, like, teasing the Ultra 64, which would later become the Nintendo 64. Um, and they're going to come out and kind of give the release date, the cost, things like that. And it was widely believed that it would come out in, in September, as it did. Um, you know, there were leaked information, things like that. There was speculation. It was a pretty safe bet that this was all going to happen. Um, but uh, but this here was Sony. And like just to put perspective on it, Sega's the Saturn. And Sega's already in an established market. And they were kind of had a rocky slope where the Saturn, you know, kind of was kind of the mismatch, you know, there was, they're supposed to have the Genesis with the 32 X attached to it, you know, be an ongoing console. And then parallel to it would be the CD upgrade, which was the Saturn. It didn't really work out that way. And the 32 X was quickly scrapped and the Saturn became the, the lead console. So, so, so Sega is about to announce a, a, a pretty much purely CD console, even though the Saturn had a cartridge slot, which was later used just for Ram. Um, and, um, and, and, and Sony's going to jump in here. And we've already got kind of a glut of consoles on the market at this time. The 3DO's out, cost 700 bucks, like no one owns it. Um, you know, uh, it, would, it would quickly go on to nearly bankrupt the company and turn them into a software-only developer. Um, you know, Neo Geo's getting a CD format. The Jaguar's coming on the, the market soon, and it's going to get a CD add-on as well. Um, <clears throat> That's like rumored at this point. Um, we're still waiting to see what Nintendo's going to do. And is the Ultra 64 going to be a CD-based console or not? A lot of people thought it was. And uh, you've still got the, the the fallout at this time of like some people are scrapping up to get the Sega CD. Um, the Turbo Graphics CD, the Turbo Duo had just fallen from grace. And people were talking about how awesome those were and how you could import games and they'd play and all this crazy stuff. And so, I mean, CD mania is everywhere. And there's a ton of consoles out there and they're all expensive. They're like three to five. $500. And then in the case of the 3DO, you know, $700. I think Neo Geo CD, because it was supposed to be your cheap version of a Neo Geo. I think it was 400 or 500. I mean, these are large consoles, but the media is dirt cheap. And that's the key and why we have this glut because discs were easy to make. They were, um, they were a lot cheaper than cartridges. They didn't require any, you know, any hard Ram, or, or chips to be built in. I mean, they were basically small arcade PCB, PCB boards. That's not what they were, but that's what you can think of them as uh, when cartridges were out. So everything be- depended on the chip market, and you had size requirements, all this stuff. A CD-ROM is 700 megs, bigger than any cartridge. I think even... I, I actually I know it's bigger than um, what's on uh, in, an, in a Nintendo 64 cartridge. And... 
you've got um, you've got the ability to stream music. You can do Redbook Audio, which creates literal soundtracks like you would hear on a CD. Um, and uh, and you've got all these abilities. Plus, since the media is cheap to come out, you would see a lot of games getting released. You know, um, you could release a bunch of games. It was a pretty small risk. You know, you could print a bunch of discs, and if it didn't sell, you pulled it off the shelves. No big deal. And if it did sell, awesome. You know, so you're charging the consumer less for more high quality games, and um, as a result. They're, they're getting it. And, you know, there wasn't even a need for much copyright protection. Previously, Nintendo had a bunch of stuff, so people couldn't put things out on their consoles. At this time, CD burners were pretty expensive. Blank CD media was very expensive. And so most consoles opted for no protection, although the Saturn and the PlayStation, you know, kind of marked the end of that because there is copyright protection in both of those to prevent even today from you burning a disc and just popping it into a PlayStation 1 or a Saturn and, and using it. Obviously, there are ways around that. Um and so, so here's Sony jumping in at this very dangerous time. It's their first time making a console. Um, there was a lot of speculation as to how would this go, how would this work. They were showing hints, though, you know, with kind of what they were doing from the get. And they're Sony, so they're a big, you know, electronics manufacturer. But, you know, with Philips taking their stab and, and, and 3DO, which um, worked with uh, Magnavox and Panasonic, I think, made consoles for that. Um, even JVC made the XI, which was just a licensed Sega CD um, and the Laser Active, which had licenses to do Turbo Graphics games and, and Sega CD games with an add-on port. You know, you've got all these companies that are big dog electronics companies thinking they can take a stab in the video game market and and pretty much failing um, for the most part. And uh, people just had had it with CD Media. So this was supposed to be the year where CD Media was going to show that it could be on consoles and it could be ported appropriately and it could be cost-effective. And so, um, you know, the price point that had been decided, especially because of the prices that the consoles were selling for in Japan, was that it would pretty much be four hundred dollars. And uh, you know, this this began the the shock announcement of the pressers started right off the bat at this uh, ninety five E three, um, and uh, and I, I know for a fact it was ninety five Z three. And so um, this is kind of how Sony inherently won the. Uh, the race right off the bat um, uh, with their presser because Sega goes on first. And what Sega does is they announced that the Sega Saturn three ninety nine ninety nine, and I think there was a four forty nine ninety nine version that came with uh, Virtual Fighter two, which was the heavy killer app over in, in Japan that that really launched with the with the Saturn and made it a strong launch. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, with Virtual Fighter two and probably a, a demo disc or something for four fifty. Um, and then they announced that it would be coming out tomorrow. I think this was on June 1st, and it was coming out June 2nd. And everybody in the audience was like, what the hell? Um, you got to understand how stupid this move actually was. And in, not even in, in, in retrospect, in, in straight up, right after you say it, hindsight, they should have known this was going to be a problem. They had only made the deal with like four major retailers. And um, I think it was Electronics Boutique... Um, and uh, maybe it was Babbage's, and then there were two others. And I don't even know if it was KB or not. And uh, I know some of the big box retailers, namely Walmart, were not part of this. And um, and I think KB was not a part of this as well, which is why they were so mad. And um, so, first of all, you've got these, these retailers that are heavy in the video game market, Toys R Us and Walmart being the two biggest. And I don't think Toys R Us was part of this either, but again, don't quote me on that. Should have done my research a little on the Saturn side. I didn't think about it. Um, but you got these big box retailers that are known for video games, and they're getting shunned by this deal that was going on behind the scenes that they didn't even know about. 
Furthermore, you've got the stores. Okay, these deals were made behind closed doors with the with the high ups of this branch. But think about the person who has an electronics boutique suddenly finding out that tomorrow they're going to get a huge shipment of Sega Saturns and they need to have inventory. They need to try to sell it. They need to work with their pre-orders. They need to call customers in. They need to move this stuff and they need to do it now. And they have to make room and shelf space and inventory and cost. It was just a big deal. Like if, if you're a manager, you're you're going to have to lose a lot of money buying these things. Because, uh, I mean, on hardware, you paid the same as, as the customer pays. They were paying 450 for these consoles and, 300, or, and 400 respectively. Furthermore, Sega obviously had their games ready. So they've got the four games that were in the initial initial launch window, including Virtua Fighter. And I think Clockwork Knight was, was part of that too. But you've just got those four main games. And then you've got companies that were hoping to get into that launch window, uh, third-party developers. I know the big one was, I think Tomb Raider is supposed to be a launch game for the Saturn. And um, these companies are getting screwed. Um, first of all, the Saturn had a dual processor, which made it very hard to program for. And it really handled 2D layers a lot better than 3D, um, especially because it chose to do its polygons and squares as opposed to PlayStation triangles. And triangles would later went out in terms of 3D rendering polygons. Um, and so it was already a tough chore and now to be a third party developer, hoping to get that launch rush, all those people going in to buy the console, he didn't necessarily have to have the greatest game. It just had to look good next to the other games out. These guys all lose that. Now they know that their game, they were gunning for September, which is, um, September 5th, I think Saturn day or whatever it was supposed to be the day of, of the launch release. And, um, and that wasn't going to happen anymore. So now your game is going to come out three months, four months after the consoles on the market and you're going to lose that wind. Um, and then you've got consumers. How the hell are consumers going to find out about this? There, there was no hardcore version of the internet and it was all news groups and crazy stuff like that. There wasn't a gaming website for you to go to. And the, the print magazines, they might be able to toss something into their newest run, but I mean, really it's got to be a month out for approval. You know, you're not going to be telling anyone about it until well after it's happened. So this just pissed off everybody. And, um, and Sega's, you know, not making good on it. And, and the response from what I hear on that sales floor was that this was not a good move. Then the next day, Sony comes out and blows them away twofold. They come out and they say, um, I, and, and there's con conflicting stories on this. Jeremy Parrish seems pretty confident that this is what happened. And so I'll believe him that they just came out and said, PlayStation, two ninety nine ninety nine, Bam. It's gonna, and then either right before, or right after that, they announced that it's gonna release on September 9th um, in in America. Right there, you're undercutting your your um, your competition because you don't screw over anybody. Everybody knew that this was gonna be the release date, or that somewhere around there was gonna be the release date. So all your retailers get to plan, all your retailers get to get stock, they get to do pre-orders, let their customers know. Launch games get to come out on time and, and with everybody else. Your third parties are happy. And furthermore, at $100 less than the Saturn, you are really trying to just jump in there strong. Um, Ridge Racer was going to be a launch game. I think Battle Arena Toshinden, which 
for all intents and purposes, was just kind of like a weapon-based Virtua Fighter clone um, so that they know they've got that on their side. And you've got a whole slew of great games, you know, ready to come out at launch. Um, you know, I mean, you even saw like Midway releasing like Mortal Kombat 3 early on. You know, Street Fighter Alpha would hit, um, you know, and things like that. So it was a really strong, like just introduction to the PlayStation. And uh, it turned out to work out very well for Sony um, because... Uh, uh, by the time the PlayStation came out on September 9th, it had already um, sold more than 100,000 um, pre-orders. And that was the total sales, um, l less than the total sales that the Saturn had gotten with that three, four-month head start. So people were burned hard by the Saturn, and it, it didn't work very well in its favor. And um, it can be argued that that very reason um, and lack of support um, over here in our country is why a lot of games that came out great games that came out on the Saturn which had much more strength in Japan because it didn't have such a rocky history and, and stretch of price point and all that fun stuff over in Japan uh, many great games um, came out um, on the Saturn over there and that's why uh, most people who Saturn game you know like to import and you'll see a lot of uh, ports of games that also came out on PlayStation 1, but over here we only got the PlayStation version. Um, it's, it's based purely on sales and the fact that, uh, that this all went down. Um, so the PlayStation hits, and uh, it, again, it, it relied mostly on an integrated motherboard. Um, it had 3D graphics processing. It was a 32-bit system, which obviously you know, is a step up. It's not the first 32-bit system by any stretch of the imagination, but it had a very easy-to-understand and program for architecture um, with a single processor and things like that. Um, your, your media was CD. That was very easy. And you had Redbook audio um, in most cases for um, music. Um, this is where you'd get pre-rendered graphics for great cutscenes, um, movies. The full-motion video, the FMV, was pretty much on the downturn. It was pretty much believed that this was a, a failure um, with early CD-ROM systems and wouldn't continue on. And so this is where the PlayStation really helps usher in this new realm of, um, you know, of, of pre-rendered graphics um, and then and then polygonal, you know, in-engine graphics while you're playing the game. These these triangles that make up, you know, millions of triangles that make up 3D rendered um, games. And so while a, there were you know a handful of games like that on the on the Saturn, it really was the PlayStation. And most of those were ports anyway, back and forth. You know, most of the your strong 3D games um, were solely on the PlayStation. And um, you know you your weaker ones um, were on the Saturn. And then Saturn did, although, step forward and, and make some pretty impressive uh, 2D games. Uh, it was widely believed that any 2D fighting game and stuff like that is, is definitely better on the Saturn than on the PlayStation. Um, and uh, and so, um, yeah, the PlayStation comes out. Um, it, uh, it has... Um, you know, uh, it has a, a copyright protection, which is like nearly impossible to replicate even today. It had a, a faulty boot sector in the very beginning of it, which made it very hard to pirate games. Um, and uh, and it also, you know, had uh, jet black discs. And Sony was telling everybody that these jet black discs uh, were a special media type that, you know, not, not that it wasn't CD-ROM, but that it was just a style that couldn't be, you know, used anywhere else. Um, it had a pretty decent amount of uh, hardware iterations. Um, the the earliest model um, had a parallel port in the back, which was ideally for add-ons in the future. It also had the AVs um, 
uh, in the form of uh, re- the AV composites, the red, white, and yellows, uh, in the form of uh, they were actually a plug in the back. Um, it also supported the AV multi-out, which became the universal cord for the PlayStation 1. Um, but it did have just the regular composite video. So if you can track down an old one that still has, you know, they use, it was the very earliest ones. They were prone to overheating and, and burning out and the CD-ROM breaking. But if you can find one of those, you know, that's one, you know, it's got the composite videos. Um, it would get a bunch of iterations eventually leading to the, uh, the the 9000 series, which would remove the IO the IO port because Sony had decided they weren't going to do any add-ons using that parallel port, and uh, pretty much Game Shark and and um, and Codebreaker and various other you know mod chip things that allowed you to play imports and sometimes copied games um, were utilizing that port um, to do that stuff. So they definitely didn't want that to happen. So um, so yeah, so. Um, uh, that would happen. The PlayStation controller uh, started off very similar to to most controllers, to the Super Nintendo controller. I mean, it had a directional D-pad, up, down, left, right. It had four face buttons. Uh, they were shapes uh, and still retains today. Square, triangle, circle, X. Um, it had dual triggers at the top, um, R1, R2, L1, L2. Um, later on, they would throw in dual analogs, which would later become, you know, key to, to most of this stuff that... Uh, that happened um, with uh, most of the stuff that happened uh, with video games moving forward. And so while the dual analogs were available on the PlayStation 1, I I don't think there were many games, but there might have been a handful that actually used it for what we know today, where one is movement and the other is moving the camera. Um, But it still is there. Um, And uh, obviously rumble support, which also became a big staple in video games uh, moving forward. Um, later on, um, Ultra 64 would be announced as the Nintendo 64 it would be a cartridge based console, really bad for third party gamers. And as a result, you see PlayStation, especially with the dwindling of the, the Saturn really stepping forward as the premier console, um, going into like 97. Um, and so that's a really strong time for the PlayStation. Um, you know, you would, you would see most people who, had an N64 swapping over to the PlayStation, Saturn was basically dead. So if you weren't heavy in the import scene and the very expensive format um, that comes with it, um, you were pretty much, you know, stuck um, switching over to the PlayStation. Um, but with the mass amount of games, I think somewhere around 2,500 games were released for the console in its, um, you know, seven plus year lifespan. Um, you know, you you really saw you know, lots of strength with that console. Um, and one of the biggest things that PlayStation is known for, especially in America is the RPG. Um, while the super Famicom in Japan actually gave birth to some of the greatest RPGs of our time, and definitely some of the strong ones that would later show face in America on the PlayStation one, um, you know, it really didn't catch on too strongly in, in America. Uh, you didn't see too many, heavy RPGs on the PlayStation or on the Super Nintendo in America. Obviously the Final Fantasies made their way over and then there were weird hybrids like, you know, Secret of Mana came over, Super Mario RPG, things like that. But for the most part, that was Square pushing it forward. I mean, you see some of the weirdest things. I mean, you see uh, Dragon Warrior 1 through 4 come out on Nintendo. It gets burned so bad on there with such poor sales that Dragon Warrior 5 known as Dragon Quest in, in in Japan comes out on the Super NES but or on the Super Famicom but does not come out on the Super NES it just didn't come out um and there's there's countless stories like that uh, the you know I mean one of the most popular is Secret of Mana's sequel 
Um, in Japan, you know, we knew it as Final Fantasy Adventure over here. Um, but in, you know, Seiken, it was called Seiken Densetsu. And it was the first in a series. And it was on Game Boy. Seiken Densetsu 2 was known as Secret of Mana over here. And then Seiken Densetsu 3, otherwise probably known as Secret of Mana 3, um, depending on how you want to name it, um, was a huge game. And widely regarded as one of the best games on the console, if not the best game on the console for a lot of uh, Jap- uh, RPG players. And... Um, and that's like the the holy grail, you know, like people want to get their hands on it. And, you know, while there's uh, fan translations and stuff available, you know, it's one of those great games we never got and never got ported. Um, so we see kind of a resurgence of this on the PlayStation. And the reason why was because of Square. Square had always worked heavily with Nintendo. Um, you know, from a Japanese standpoint, the first six Final Fantasies would come out on Nintendo consoles, one, two, and three being on the Famicom, four, five, and six being on the Super Famicom in America, one being on the Nintendo, and then two and three being actually four and six coming out on um, on this on the Super Nintendo. Um, and then it's, you know, it was thought of, and there were even, you know, E3 footage and things like that, that uh, the N64, Ultra 64 would be the home of Final Fantasy VII, which God knows what it would be called in America. Um, it, maybe it would have been called Final Fantasy VII. And it basically, there was a tech demo that had 3D renderings of um, the characters from Final Fantasy VI slash three here, um, you know, rendered in 3D. And I think the final straw was when the N64 was announced that it would be a console base or a cartridge based system. This was very bad for Square, who already had a rocky road going into it with uh, Nintendo. Uh, I think around 95 when Super Mario RPG comes out, Square's pretty much had it with Nintendo, and they're very pissed off with you know all their rules and their their licensing and all this stuff and and the fact that they won't move into the cd format which will cause them to make bigger better games the rpg really benefits from this because you can make long drawn out stories with lots of text and lore and great songs and pre-rendered graphics and movies and you've got 700 whopping megabytes to work with versus the what 32 megabytes or it might have even been 32 megabits which is even smaller um that were in a super nintendo cartridge and then this you know the whatever the 128 megabits or whatever that could make up a uh, n64 cartridge so um i think they just had it and so that's when you find out that in 97 you're going to get final fantasy 7 which was called 7 and none of us questioned it how we had final fantasy 1 2 and 3 and then 7 <laughs> but final fantasy 7 is coming out on the fucking playstation one it's going to be on the playstation one and it's going to be gorgeous and the footage they showed it's in this this you know cyberpunk future uh, we've never seen something like that before cloud is spiky hair he ushers in this new generation of the the uh you know stereotypical japanese jrpg caricature and um it comes out and even if you weren't an rpg fan you were uh, you were forced into it with this game you know it was kind of like resident evil for me when i i remember in 96 um getting on board with a playstation because i finally was able to afford it um from you know christmas money and then saving up a lot of stuff um you know in 96 i was 14 years old i was able to buy a playstation and i at the time i could only buy one game and to be honest with you i was going to buy i think it was tomb raider but I don't well, actually know it wouldn't have been. I, I defied Tomb Raider. So I think it was going to be uh, Ridge Racer or something something simple. Maybe even Battle Arena Toshinden, which some of my friends had. Um, 
and uh, they told me about Resident Evil. And Resident Evil looked like it was something I wasn't going to like because it was 3D, and I really didn't like the 3D space, and it didn't make much sense to me as a uh, as a 16-bit gamer. And um, Resident Evil was a, a living, breathing, haunted house, and that really ushered me into 3D gaming. And I think the same can be said for RPG gaming, especially turn-based JRPG gaming um, in America. I mean, Final Fantasy VII was how you got introduced. It was huge. It was three discs. I think the game comes out to one3 three gigabytes. Um, it was millions and millions of dollars. It had, it was, it was different too. It had the materia system where any person could be any class of fighter that had never been done before. Um, you know, it had, you know, vehicular combat and weird mini games and stuff like that. You, you had all kinds of different stuff you were doing other than just turn-based combat and dungeon exploring, you know, and it was, it was it, like over a hundred hours if you wanted everything. Knights of the Nine. It had these long cut scenes. Um, spoilers, I guess. At the end of disc one, Aerith, who's with your team, the whole time gets stabbed and killed, run through by Sephiroth, the, the bad guy you're, you're chasing after. Um, you know, I mean, looking back on it now, there are a bunch of inconsistencies and weird stuff that's going on. But uh, and, the, and the translation is pretty, pretty lackluster. But, you know, I mean, taking it for face value, I mean, it was just incredible. And once Final Fantasy VII hits and makes it big, you see the floodgates open. Okay, so Working Designs, one of the bigger ones, comes over, moves over to the PlayStation, um, where it had seen pretty poor... Um, you know, sales just due to lack of market penetration on the uh, Sega CD doing, um, you know, the Lunar series, and then also on Turbo Graphics 16 CD or Turbo Duo with um, Ease and a, and a couple other um, of, of their titles that they brought over. And so, Working Designs gets to flourish now, and they release um, they release the Lunar series as like a brilliant box set that, that comes over and it's got gorgeous cutscenes and it's still seen today as an expensive collector's item probably about a hundred bucks for the series i would say if you can find it in the box and um, the definitive version of the lunar series so far uh, of those games um, and then they also brought out their own stuff um, you know uh, just recently i acquired elemental Gearbolt, which of all things is this anime cutscene heavy gorgeous japanese game with brilliant sound that's a light gun shooter it's the weirdest things um and so Working Design saw a lot of, of praise, and their discs were very cool looking. It had they had like a, you know beautiful animation and full books that were in full color. It was very it was very impressive. Um, you'd see a lot of games that came out on the Super Famicom that never came out in America getting ported over. Um, I know um, um, uh, was it Silver Star Story? No, I think that's Lunar. Also, um, a Star Ocean comes over here. Um, you get uh, more of the Mana series. You get uh, Dragon Quest makes its move over here as Dragon Warrior 7 at this time. Um, we never saw 5 and 6 in America. Um, and then you also see a lot of re-releases. Square decides to go balls to the wall when it gets um, with the PlayStation 1 and release almost every single Final Fantasy on it. Um, Final Fantasy 1 and 2 were released as a set. It was the first time we got to see Final Fantasy 2, which was actually a pretty poor game, but we got to see it. Um, you know, we got Final Fantasy um, 4 mixed with Chrono Trigger in the Anthology series, and then you get 5 and 6. We'd never seen 5 before, which was, you know, many think, is you know, a lot of people think that's the greatest of the Final Fantasies. Um, they had horrible cutscene or horrible load times, but people didn't care back then. Um, and then you even get um, a lot of uh, companies just bringing these RPGs over. So Ark the Lad was a was a 
triple release that uh, Working Designs brought over. It was a gorgeous box set that gave us Ark the Lad 1, 2, and 3. Um, still popular today. Um, you know, uh, in comes over here. Suikoden 2 comes over here. We're even getting the sequels. You know, you get... Um, you get uh, uh, one of the Mana series, um, you get Alundra, you get um, Xenogears, you get Wild Arms, and just a slew of Japanese-style RPGs that we'd never seen before. And, I mean, this was huge. Um, but this really doesn't speak... I mean, that's a, a big thing, but this doesn't speak to just all the crazy stuff. Like, everything was on the PlayStation. Like, ports of, like, literally everything you know i mean right after it's out in arcades you know fighter fans got the entire street fighter alpha series um they released a compilation with a bunch of definitive versions of street fighter 2 um you know you get uh, castlevania finally gets its rush into the new metroidvania style with castlevania symphony of the night for some weird reason they release for cheap Castlevania Chronicles, which takes the Sanyo 68,000 version of Castlevania that we hadn't seen in America and releases it, plus up graphics. You've got, um, uh, oh, just all kinds of stuff. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking on it. Um, Tomb Raider, we'll see its release. And even though it's not, you know, top dog, um, or it was, it was intended to be a Saturn game at first. It ports over and, and has a thriving series on the PlayStation. Same thing goes for various series like Resident Evil. You know, Capcom starts that up. Um, you've got, you know, even Light Gun Games. Dance Dance Revolution has a huge set of releases out here. Um, and, and, and you even, I mean, and this all thrives without the use of a uh, even a um, a mascot. Um, uh, technically, Crash Bandicoot was a mascot for a short period of time. Naughty Dog, previously known only for the horrible way of the warrior on 3DO, which was like a Mortal Kombat clone. Um, you get Crash Bandicoot, which successfully does what Sonic never could. I mean, talk about an FU in the face of uh, Sonic. Saturn never found a way to bring it to 3D. And even when they did it in Dreamcast, they didn't do it very well. Crash Bandicoot is essentially how you bring Sonic into 3D. And they did it in spite of Sonic on its competitive console that's huge um i mean the grand theft auto series would see its inception there of course it was a top-down cartoony thing but i mean that's where it would start um you start to see tactics games come out ogre battle you know rise of the black queen and um you've got final fantasy tactics you know people are getting into tactical rpgs um you know you've just got all kind of stuff you have um Oh, the Fear Effect games came out, which were just these weird streaming, sexual, lesbianic, crazy, you know, games, action games that came out. I mean, you just saw everything basically come out on the PlayStation. And it was like um, it was like the opposite of, you know, the the glut that that caused the, the crash um, on Atari. These games were all cheap. They were easy to find. They clearanced them out. They released them in cheap versions for 20 bucks. Every game was 20, 30 bucks. I mean, and, and you know, I haven't even begun to scrape the surface of all the crazy series that came out on this. Um, but uh, but that's, that's not the point. The point was, I mean, the PlayStation was the console to have. It was like the only choice um, going into the late 90s until the Dreamcast comes out and kind of sparks something in 2000 um, or late 99. 
But until then, I mean, it was all that was out and everybody had one and everybody was playing with them and it eventually went down to 200 and then a hundred bucks. And I mean, that, that made it even bigger. And this, um, this is where, um, Sony does a lot of different things. One, it proves that CD format does work. It ushers in 3d gaming. Um, it brings the JRPG to America and proves that RPGs can thrive in America, which is a great add on because um, a lot of my friends who are gamers today still just play it for that. Um, you see the inception of survival horror and oh, so many other genres. Um, and then furthermore, um, <clears throat> you've got Sony establishing itself as a great staple. Not only was it great and had solid first party games, but it had these just abundance of great third party games, you know, and it knew exactly what it was doing and it followed this so well. There was no licensing, make as many as you want, sell the games for what you want to. They're cheap CD media, you know, I mean, you know, do it. And there was, everybody was on the PlayStation. There's probably a game iteration of almost everything other than Nintendo series on, on the, on the PlayStation one. And, and I guess Sega to a certain extent, but, um, but yeah, it, I mean, it all, it all got its start there. And so, um, and, and it also pulled us out of this mini crash, which said, no, you know what? This is going to be it. This is the definitive, this is the game. And this is where, I think this is the first time where you finally see a console taking on PCs and it wasn't as good, but it was good enough. And that's why you saw a lot of PC ports as well. Um, you know, the guys who made infinity Ward were at the time, I believe, uh, 989 studios, they, they made Medal of Honor. It was it was the first of the World War II first person shooters. I mean, the inception of uh, the the genesis of um, of Call of Duty starts on the PlayStation, um, and it only comes because Doom and various other first person shooters started coming out on this console and selling. You know, um, you had Descent come out, Diablo came out, um, Hexen came out, all these crazy PC games come out. And so there really was very little the PlayStation didn't have. Now, granted, from a sound perspective, um, it was Redbook Audio So, uh, in, in most cases. So, I mean, the CD audio was good, but it, it wasn't amazing. And then the other thing you've got going for you is that, um, that the games nowadays look pretty rough and blurry. But, um, but this, this starts, um, you know, the PlayStation and it ushers in the new era and what we think about today in what is probably migrated itself into this realm. So thank you, Sony, if it weren't for Nintendo screwing you over so many years ago and you having the perfect timing on your presser, this may never have happened. So, um, I was planning for this podcast to go about an hour and I'd say I've, just about hit it. So, um, tell you what, tell me what you think about this podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the uh, posting at gaminghistory101.com. We're on iTunes. I'm going to start pushing this. Um, I'm going to get me on everything on Stitcher, on FeedBurner. Well, I know I'm on a lot of feeds, but I'm going to try to even get on Zoom Marketplace. Um, download and rate us on iTunes, please. Let's get our namesake out there. Let's get these going. Let's get us up on Stitcher and things like that. Let's prove that retro games not only have a podcast, but they can be viable. Um, I'm going to try to work with Retronauts and see if Bob Mackey can't give me a little shout out because you know I'm one of the few guys in town still doing it um, if any of you are hardcore retro gamers and think you can be a host please hit me up if anyone wants to be a retro writer on the site also let me know um, and here comes a whole new world of, of various multimedia to enjoy retro games because a lot of people told me that they don't really want to play these retro games they just want to see them played so fine I'll play them for you and you can watch them be played and if you don't like it you don't like it and that's cool and if you do cool you can see what Silent Hill is start to finish because you don't want to actually play it yourself 
Um, so that's going to be it for now. Hopefully next week um, we'll release the, the final final countdown, part four, where we'll finish up the top ten. Um, and in the future I've got uh, more stuff. Plus I'm going to re-release some stuff that I did with uh, with um, Jamie slash Ellie um, uh, with Vault Reviews. We called them Retro Reviews and some other stuff. But uh, in the meantime, it'll probably be two or three weeks before I'm back again and we will have a new theme, but I haven't chosen it yet. Um, but again, if you want any comments, feedback, anything like that, leave a comment at Gaming History 101 or uh, email me personally spidersvenom s-p-y-d-e-r-s-v-e-n-o-m at gmail.com and uh, give me show topics ideas things you want to see uh, tell me what you want covered I'll cover it I promise you um, and uh, and furthermore uh, I think we'll just wrap it up um, last but not least if you are interested in more modern day stuff uh, you can always catch me um, with my wonderful co-host on the B-Team podcast that can be found at theb-team-podcast.com. of course we're on everything and much more than, than this podcast is um uh, iTunes, Stitcher, the whole nine yards. And we can be found live where you can be in the audience, write to us, chat with us, and talk with us live um, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on allgames.com. So without further ado, this is Fred from Gaming History 101 saying have a good one. <laughs>